Father in heaven, we thank you for this time in which we can reflect upon heavenly music and also reflect upon music that draws people away from heaven. We pray that you would give us your discernment and your spirit that uh, we might be willing even to change our favored way of listening if it's not in accordance with your will. We pray for your spirit now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I'm not sure how I can do this uh, topic justice uh, in an hour's time or a little less. and probably the only way I'd be able to do it justice is if we had more time where we could have the actual music examples uh, and, uh, and actually play the examples and then dissect the music. One of these days, we'll have a music uh, seminar where we do all of those things, and so we can see each one of those elements that are there. I was uh, blessed uh, in several ways in my life, but uh, one of the ways I was blessed was the uh, father uh, that the Lord gave me. Uh, my father um, was a great musician. I uh, had a natural gift of music. I think he only had one or two years of actual formal music training, but uh, he um, was a great uh, a composer, a great arranger, And uh, he actually made his way through college uh, playing jazz piano as part of a nightclub. There were several other performers that came with him, singers, et cetera. And he would write all the music uh, for that. And he would also, um, uh, when he was on board ship in World War II, he was the, the, the default music person on board ship. And for entertainment, when they'd be out there in the Pacific uh, for days on end, not seeing anyone or anything, the captain would uh, get him to uh, write music uh, for everyone on board ship. And uh, this was actually before his college days. And even though he uh, had a gift of music, he hadn't written for multiple instruments. And one time he wrote, the first piece he wrote uh, was for trumpet and clarinet and piano and singers, etc. And as soon as they all started playing, they were all off because he didn't realize the trumpet was a B-flat instrument. (laughs) And he didn't realize the clarinet, I think, is E-flat or something. And so he said, stop. And so he had to rewrite all of that for the the appropriate keys to get it there uh, together. And so he was often having to write music um, uh, where he was at. And he ended up writing a lot of uh, music, particularly male quartet music. He was part of a male quartet later on after he became a Christian uh, called the Flying Four, uh, where they would uh, fly into these small churches uh, and perform uh, their male quartet music, even made recordings. But uh, after he became a Christian, he recognized uh, his need to give up the music that he had performed and enjoyed and even composed because he knew the effects of that music and he knew what it did very clearly in regards to declining the morals of those that were there uh, in those uh, nightclub places and how it would do it. He even knew how to produce that effect on the frontal lobe of the brain. Uh, even though he didn't understand quite the frontal lobe, but he knew what would produce a sense of satisfaction and enjoyment and wanting more, but yet a decline in morals. And uh, when he became a converted Christian, he, re- he recognized his need to go away from that. And I grew up during the time after he'd become converted. 
and the first few years, in fact, all of our brothers and sisters would recognize it. As soon as the music would come on the radio, we might be listening to the news, and a commercial would come on, and boom, like lightning, he would, he would switch that off. And uh, we wondered why he was so particular about that. And then later on, we realized because he had an affinity for that, uh, he didn't want to enjoy or develop a taste for it again. He was totally trying to transform his taste. And finally, it came where after he was, was away from it for a number of years, it no longer had the appeal uh, for him. And he could actually listen to it without that affinity being there. In fact, it was kind of obnoxious uh, uh, to him at that point in time. Uh, and after that time, and only then, is when he actually put on music seminars himself. He would go to the piano and play Onward Christian Soldiers in a syncopated rhythm and be able to draw out from the people in the audience, what does this make you think of? What does it make you want to do? And just go ahead and compile it from the people that were there. All right, now we're going to play Onward Christian Soldiers without the syncopated rhythm. What does that want, want to make you do? What does that make you think about, et cetera? And so he could easily draw out just by examples uh, how the style of the music would bring about either the lower nature or an elevated nature that was there. And so I had the advantage of listening to that. And then I had the advantage of also studying under the mother of music therapy in the United States, Juanita McElwain. She started more PhD music therapy programs than anybody else. And the last program she started was at Phillips University in Oklahoma uh, and started her PhD music therapy program. And I went there and I studied under her uh, and I also saw a lot of the studies uh, she did. And I actually got in her chair, her music chair, and had the music piped in and she would measure heart rate and galvanize skin pressure and all of the, the mental effects uh, that this music could do. And then also look at the EEG and see what was happening with the frontal lobe of the brain, et cetera. And so as a result of growing up in an environment where my father knew the difference and was able to easily demonstrate that difference and then studying under some more expert uh, individuals, um, I have compiled my own uh, choices of music. Uh, that uh, also go along with inspiration in the Bible. What we really ought to be uh, centering in on is heavenly uh, music. And as I mentioned, uh, starting now would be the good time to start. Well, our first uh, quote is from the pages of inspiration. Councils on health is where this comes from. The brain nerves which communicate with the entire system are the only medium through which heaven can communicate to man and affect his inmost life. Where is it? The only medium through which heaven can communicate to man and affect his inmost life is through what? The brain nerves. Does music affect the brain nerves? Absolutely, it affects the brain nerves uh, in a powerful way. Uh, good music and bad music uh, is either good or bad because of how it is affecting those brain nerves. And then the next statement, whatever disturbs the circulation of the electric currents in the nervous system lessens the strength of the vital powers and results in a deadening of the sensibilities of the mind. And so just by disturbing those electric currents, you're going to lessen your vital powers and deaden your sensibilities of the mind. Uh, and this is why uh, music can have uh, that uh, powerful uh, influence. Music enters the brain through its emotional regions, which include the temporal lobe and limbic system.
From there, some kinds of music tend to produce a positive frontal lobe response that influences the will, moral worth, and reasoning power. You'll see this on EEG, you'll see it on PET scans and other ways. But the type of music that produces this very positive frontal lobe response is characteristic of what would normally be called traditional classical music. It's where most of our hymns are derived from uh, in, the, uh, in the hymnal. Uh, and uh, this is, um, although there can be modern composers uh, that put together the traditional classic genre, uh, it doesn't have to be composers of yesteryear. It can be present-day composers that do that. It does produce a positive frontal lobe response. And this is actually a picture I took myself of the Dallas Symphony during their annual Christmas concert. Our family tends to go to that uh, every year if we get a chance. And uh, great spiritual themes are sung. Uh, and uh, it is a, a performance that sold out 12 nights in a row without any advertising. Uh, in regards to um, uh, how good it is. They never advertise this. In fact, if you look for it online, you won't even see it because uh, they don't have any trouble selling out their seats uh, for, uh, for this occasion. Other kinds of music will evoke very little, if any, frontal lobe response, but will produce a large emotional response with very little logical or moral interpretation. And this is characteristic of the syncopated rock and roll rhythms uh, that are prevalent in our day uh, today. And we'll get into that uh, type of, uh, of music here later on. But it basically, um, the studies show that upbeat music is not necessarily uplifting music. Uh, it can have a, a fake sense of, of uplifting, but it's not really an uplifting music as far as the frontal lobe of the brain uh, is concerned. This study was done out of Florida, music psychotherapy in which people are encouraged to reflect on their past, present, and future while listening to classical music improves mood and reduces stress. Other types of music have been utilized for this. It doesn't show this positive effect. Six sessions of classical music therapy were held over a 12-week period in 23 to 45-year-olds. These subjects showed improved scores on tests of overall mood reported feeling less depressed, reported feeling less fatigue, and cortisol levels improved. And by the way, notice this is in the Journal of Health Psychology, it's called. This was not on individuals with depression. These were people that were, quote, normal people in everyday society. They didn't, where they weren't suffering from depression or bipolar disorder or those type of things. And by the way, good music will help those individuals as well. Uh, but these were just normal people, but they actually had their mood improve. They had less uh, transient depression, uh, less fatigue, and there's objective measures of improvement. The memory can even improve when the cortisol levels uh, go down. Uh, the stress levels uh, go down, et cetera. And this was just one music session every two weeks uh, where it uh, was that type of uplifting music where they were also thinking uh, at the same time. Then a study on creative thought and your mood. 24 university students performed two tests of attention. Positive moods were induced by playing Bach's Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 3, and negative moods by a Prokofiev piece played at half speed, uh, which also tells you not all classical music is helpful. That's why I call it more traditional classical music. Prokofiev is your more contemporary classical music, where you don't have the nice melody and harmony and balanced rhythm that goes with it. The rhythm is kind of boom, boom, boom. It's kind of all over the place. And the melody and harmonies are discordant, et cetera. Uh, and uh, studies show that that induces depression. 
And in fact, when it's played at half speed, it induces even more depression. Uh, and so, um, uh, in fact, I should mention, this is one of the reasons why the door was opened in the last um, 60 years, 60, 70 years, for the rock and roll music to come about. Contemporary music, uh, contemporary classical music, was utilized uh, starting in the 1900s, early 1900s, and going forward to you know 1950, 60. Uh, you have Gershwin, you have others that uh, that did this type of music and went um, uh, forward uh, with it, and then it became even more discordant and more problematic. And, uh, and you had traditional classical music basically not being written. Or if you did write traditional classical music, you didn't become a famous composer that was being played by the symphony orchestras around. And then in the 1950s and 60s, a type of music came forward that did have melody, did have harmony, but had syncopated rhythm with it. And people were so hungry for music that had harmony and melody for it that they accepted it despite the syncopated rhythm. And we call it the rock and roll venue uh, that started. And uh, this was one of the reasons why it gained popularity, because it actually had a melody and harmony uh, with it, uh, unlike the, tr the contemporary classical music that was being utilized at that time. And so it began to, to really grow in popularity. I think if classical music would have stayed the way it was supposed to have stayed and growed in that type of genre, the, the opening never would have been made for the other, and it would have been much more easily rejected. Uh, Bach's Brandenburg Concerto has been shown to be effective. Uh, in inducing a positive mood, even in people who don't like classical music. You know, one of the things that's uh, very interesting uh, to study are musical tastes. And there are people that say, I don't like classical music. And then you'll play them a classical piece and they'll say, oh, well, I like that. <laughs> uh, and then you'll play them another classical piece and they say, yeah, you know, I, I like that. You know, I could get into that. And, uh, and it's because they don't understand what classical music is. The only, the only time that they think they've heard classical music is at a funeral service. And it's kind of interesting, even at a funeral, a rock and roll musician, not just a rock and roll musician, any popular rock and roll musician when they die and they're at the funeral, guess what type of music you're going to hear? You're going to hear funeral classical music. One of the reasons why you're going to hear it is the family wants you to reflect seriously about the individual's life. They don't want to be seen as some cheap individual that did nothing positive for society. And so they don't play necessarily their, they might play one or two of their compositions as part of the memory part of things. But the actual service is going to have this funeral type of music. It's going to be sad and reflective, et cetera. But a lot of people, that's the only time they ever hear it. And so they think that's what classical music is. It has to be sad. It has to be in a minor key. It has to be slow. It has to be boring. Uh, and uh, they don't realize that there's 99 or 100 other types of classical music that are none of those things and that are actually quite uh, uh, healthy for them. And so when they listen to that type of music, they don't necessarily recognize that they're listening to classical music. And that's the way it is with Bach's Brandenburg Concerto. Uh, even those that don't like it, if they're sitting there at a performance of Bach's Brandenburg Concerto, they're going to have interest. 
They're going to enhance their mood uh, if they are indeed listening and not just uh, phasing out, and it's going to be a positive experience. Now, to produce a neutral mood, this was a study, to produce a neutral mood, participants read a series of facts and figures about Canada. And, uh, and then they compared uh, those, uh, uh, those three groups. Uh, when, they, when they were in a positive mood induced by the classical music, participants scored higher on a remote associate's task, a measure of creative thinking. So if you want to have creativity uh, and really be able to do something new, etc., and to design something new, this is a good way of starting, uh, contemplating on uh, positive uh, classical music. When feeling happy, Anderson explained, your attentional window is actually bigger. It's like looking through a big window versus a small window. Uh, when, of course, they read the, or when they listened to the Prokofiev, uh, their creativity went down. When they listened to, or when they just read facts and figures about Canada, their creativity was not enhanced, but their accuracy in accounting was enhanced. So if you want to have accuracy in doing your math homework, you don't want to necessarily be listening to classical music uh, behind you. It might make you creative, but not as accurate. Uh, and so um, uh, something to keep in mind uh, in regards to uh, those sort of things. And then there are studies. One of the biggest areas that is exploding is the area of music and athletic performance. And uh, uh, for those of you wanting to have the reference, I'll have to get this for you afterwards. I didn't have the time to actually put it in. But I actually became introduced to this last winter. It was summertime in Australia, but I went to Australia, and the individual that picked me up at the airport was getting his PhD in music psychology. And uh, what he was doing his PhD uh, topic on was on music and athletic performance. And uh, the first study uh, that was done that looked at it was something that I wouldn't necessarily call athletic performance, but it does re require accuracy and physical activity to do it, but is actually shooting a gun at target, you know, the marksmen that are very accurate. And they would play music to these marksmen people uh, as uh, before they were doing their shooting and if they chose during the, 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 uh, the shooting. And what they found out is when they played the typical popular music of the day, they were far less accurate. Uh, particularly the syncopated rock and roll rhythms produce marked decrease in accuracy in, it, in their performance. Classical music enhanced it significantly, so they were able to shoot very accurately after listening to the classical music. And now he's looking at it from the snowboarding perspective and the other types of uh, athletic performance and finding quite the opposite. You know, when you see TV um, things of people going down the hills and snowboarding or things like that, what type of music are you going to tend to see associated with that? You're going to tend to see that rock and roll syncopated stuff as if this is what helped them to obtain their great level of performance. And in reality it isn't. It actually detracts from the performance. Uh, and your performance can go far up, even in the athletic venue, from good classical music. One of the Australians that I met, actually he, he used to work for me, uh, back here in America, but I had lost track of him until I was back there in Australia, and he told me that he had, uh, in fact, we found it, I think my boys found it on the internet, they were Googling his name, and found out that he had won this great, uh, the greatest uh, motocross um, event in all of Australia. They hold it every year. 
And uh, my boys were asking him about, you know, how did you do this and how did you train for it? It's a grueling type of thing and a lot of, uh, of physical endurance as well as accuracy and those type of things. Uh, and he said, you know, it wasn't really that hard. He said, all you have to do is live a lifestyle such as your dad teaches and lives as far as eating is concerned, as far as exercise and as far as music. Uh, and he says, if you do those things and you train, you're going to blow the competition out of the water. Uh, and he says, that's what we found out. Now, he became a little controversial, uh, and it shouldn't have been controversial, but because your placement of the event was decided on a Sabbath performance, uh, he did not participate on Sabbath. So he had to start at the very back of the line because he had not placed on Sabbath but yet he won the event and, and won it uh, uh, very easily. And after he won the event, the, those who came in second and third place complained because he had not competed on Sabbath and said that that gave him an advantage <laughs> <laughs> because he didn't have to perform on Sabbath. And so he shouldn't have been allowed to compete at all. And so they were wanting to get his crown removed so that they could get the money, et cetera. Uh, but it's amazing the, the arguments that people come up with. But the classical music actually enhanced his motorcycle uh, type of activity. Uh, and, uh, and so it is. Uh, I think you're going to be seeing a lot more studies on this. I think, you know, as sports becomes more competitive, you're probably within a few years going to be seeing quarterbacks of the NFL listening to their classical music between plays so that they get that frontal lobe enhancement and those type of things. Uh, and you're, uh, as the studies come out, you'll probably see more of that type of thing. In fact, there is a resurgence of classical music occurring simply because of the studies that are showing its benefit out there. And people are wanting to participate in that benefit uh, and, uh, and get into that. We, uh, Alvin Toffler talks about constant stimulation of the senses. I read this in the last session. Shutting down the analytical processes and ultimately shutting down the ability to face life rationally. And much of this, the wrong type of music, is indeed uh, quite stimulating, particularly on the beat and the physical aspect of things. And it's actually shutting down the analytical process. He says it will uh, lead to your ability no longer to face life rationally. It will lead to escape techniques that involve withdrawal, apathy, and rejection of disciplined thinking when faced with difficult duties and decisions. And so one of the reasons why you're seeing a decline in decision-making ability simply is due to the effects of the music uh, that are there. And often people will need this type of music you know, the, the interesting thing about this type of music, even though it does, the wrong type of music shuts down the analytical processes, uh, individuals will get addicted to this. I mentioned in the last session that anything that suppresses the frontal lobe of your brain is going to have an addictive potential there. And so many of these people, when they're under periods of stress, they will have to listen to their syncopated music in order to feel less stressed and to be, quote, Become controlled. And you'll see this on a corporate scale. I was in an airport one time with a bunch of college kids who were on this plane to go to California. Uh, they were competing in an athletic event. And the plane was late, significantly late. We didn't know when it was going to be, et cetera. And the kids were getting, college kids were getting restless. And so they all got their iTunes out and were playing their rock and roll music, vegetating in different areas of the corner or of the airport to try to control their emotions. And I'm thinking, you know, 
uh, how sad, in a way, that you have to have that music available to you, otherwise you're going to be more irritable. But that's the way it is with addiction, and a lot of people don't realize it, uh, how addictive it is. I've had people who are into this music, even from the Christian perspective, and say, but when I hear it, it kind of calms me down, it makes me less irritable, et cetera. You know, the same thing will happen if you're an alcoholic and you drink alcohol you'll actually feel more calmer at the time when you're withdrawing from it, et cetera. And that doesn't prove that it's good for you. Uh, it actually proves that you really should get away from it uh, and, uh, uh, and not uh, go uh, towards it. Well, heavenly music starting now. Let's take a look at what uh, heavenly music is. The Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Do you think one of the ways he's blessed us is also through music? Heavenly music? According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And I think this is the way our music should be as well. Holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's what really music is for, is to praise him to the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Paul tells us, whatsoever ye do, do all to what? The glory of God. And one of the ways in which we can get an idea of appropriate good music is a musician who wrote everything that he wrote at the very bottom, he put to the glory of God. Do you know who that was? Yeah, Johann Sebastian Bach. I had the opportunity of going to um, Bach's church in Germany. I was speaking in Dresden, Germany. And by the way, if you ever go to Dresden, Germany, East Germany, it's a great music city. Uh, you can't, we were just walking around Sabbath afternoon. There was a brother from the church that was showing us the sites. You know, World War II, there's still bombing sites that are there. And wherever we walked in that city, there would be a brass group or a string group or things, uh, people like that playing a lot of Bach. Bach is still alive and well there in Dresden. So it was like a, even though we were in a city, it was like we were in a great Sabbath uh, type of, uh, of performance with this beautiful music uh, being played in different um, uh, areas, just all for free. People would just get out. It's a great music city. But uh, as a result of that, I thought, you know, we're not too far away from Box Church. We need to go up to Leipzig. So uh, the next day we went up to Leipzig. I attended the, uh, the Lutheran service there. Uh, and if you ever have the opportunity, attend that service. They always play Box music that's there. And uh, I was amazed to learn a little bit more about Bach. Bach was not well known, except in his local area. Handel, who was well known at his time, who he was well known because he wrote for the King of England, uh, was, was German, and he was traveling through Germany making a tour, and Bach requested that he might have the opportunity to meet Handel. And the request came to him, said, uh, Handel was told, there's a good musician here that composes all of his Sunday services. Uh, in fact, every prelude, every postlude, every choir number was composed fresh by Bach every week. And then Sunday afternoon, there would be a cantata 
that would be a scriptural-based cantata, all put to music to enhance the meaning. Bach was always wanting to get to the words and enhancing the meaning of the words and bringing out a truth of the words through music. Uh, and he did it in a powerful way. Uh, and he always wrote to the glory of God. He was re really writing for the church. And he did write for, he was a teacher as well. There were students that came from the local area and would stay there at the uh, Thomas uh, School of Music. And uh, they would actually be graded by, they didn't have copy machines in those days, so how did he write all this music for all these musicians every week? It was actually the students who would be graded on their ability to copy precisely what he had wrote on the one score. And so he would take it to the students, and the violin students would have to write the violin parts uh, for the orchestra members. And the uh, cello ones would write the cello parts, et cetera. And the, organist, the organ students would write the organ part. And so they all learned to write music uh, that way as well, and he was able to get things uh, copied. And when things in the practice did not quite sound right, they would find out who it was that wrote that part that that person was playing. He was playing it correctly as written, but the student didn't write it correctly. Uh, and so uh, that's how they were graded, actually, by the, uh, by the, uh, the actual practice in, in the performance. But uh, Bach, Handel would not meet Bach. He said no, he didn't have time to meet him. And uh, Bach is well known by musicologists as being the superior composer. In fact, most people that have studied music will tell you that Bach was probably the greatest composer uh, that ever lived. And uh, when he died, he died at a young age, unfortunately. Uh, complications of diabetes, they didn't know how to treat diabetes in those days, but at age 65 he died. And he was buried out in a pauper's grave uh, that just had a little stone there. And it wasn't till two generations later, actually a generation and a half later, that his son, he had 24 children, Bach did. Uh, and uh, they were all uh, music people. In fact, he had a little chamber orchestra among his whole family. He used to conduct them and just have family music. And uh, several of his sons became great musicians and great composers in their own day. And one of them, in his elderly age, was teaching the young boy, Felix Mendelssohn, who was a Jew who had converted to Christianity. And Bach's son, uh, Mendelssohn, was very interested in music and composition and those things. Mendelssohn became a great composer himself. In fact, he composed the Reformation Symphony. Uh, and this was during a period of Reformation. You know, Bach was someone who, you know, the whole Germany was Catholic and became almost whole Germany Protestantism under Lutheranism. Entire churches transformed into the Protestant message of the Bible. And music was a major part of that Protestant Reformation. Uh, uh, whenever you see great spiritual awakenings, you often see great music being accompanied uh, with that. And, uh, and Bach was composing that great music of the Reformation. But uh, where um, uh, his son was actually teaching Felix Mendelssohn, and, it, and his son was talking about his father. And he said, you know, my father used to write out the entire words of the Gospel of Matthew in music and, uh, and play this uh, and have it played in church and wonderful choruses and solos and all of that. And he would tell him about what his father did. And after he told him many times about his father, he says, you know, is there any of that music around today? And he says, you know, there's probably is some of it up in the attic. Yeah, but his son was so busy that he never got it. And after Mendelssohn asked for it repeatedly, 
uh, Bach, uh, Bach's son said, well, why don't you go up in the attic and start looking? He says, you know, the, the, the boys had to write this music. Maybe some people would have it there. And Mendelssohn had to go into a number of attics and storage places of people who might have known Bach when they were younger, uh, very young, but Bach had died to try to get his music together. And we wouldn't have any of Bach's music had it not been Felix Mendelssohn searching through attics to get it. And we found the St. Matthew Passion. We've never found the Mark Passion or the Luke Passion. He wrote it for Mark and Luke. He wrote it for John. We found John's Passion. Uh, and uh, after that, Bach became worldwide famous. And after he became worldwide famous, his church decided to uh, exhume uh, his gravesite and uh, put his grave actually in the church itself. And so if you go to Leipzig Church today, you'll see Bach's grave there, and then you'll see a lot of his compositions in words, all from the Bible, uh, there in that room uh, where Bach is buried in the basement, uh, really not in the basement, it's actually in the floor of the Leipzig church. But uh, one of the things, in fact, I wish I could play it to you, Leonard Bernstein, who, is a, who was a Jew, not a converted Christian Jew, uh, plays Bach's St. Matthew Passion and, and performs at New York Symphony Orchestra in English so it can be understood. And he describes the word pictures that are being created through the music of Bach. And he gives you just a 15-minute exposition of it, but he says it's so powerful all the way through that it's infinite. He thinks it's infinite what Bach put into that work. Uh, and uh, it begins with two choruses. One asking questions and the other answering questions about Christ. Uh, Bach would actually write many of this, the words himself, and then he would put scripture in between, and then he would do a commentary. It's almost like a Bible commentary as you're reading it through. Uh, and these two choruses are saying, see him whom a bridegroom see. See him how a lamb is he. Uh, see him when. And so all of the questions are being there and these choruses are going through and the, the orchestra is playing one theme and one melody that's very uh, contemplative, but yet uh, rhythmic. And then one chorus is singing one thing, the other chorus is answering back in a melody that way. And then in the midst of all of that throbbing, you see, you hear a boy's choir on top of it of all, uh, singing, O Lamb of God, Most Holy. Bernstein says it's the greatest thing ever that's been composed in music. But yet, chances are, you've never heard it. And there's a problem. When the greatest music composed, you've never heard. It's almost like the greatest book ever written, the Bible, and you've never read it or never even read a portion of it. Uh, and so, uh, so out of sight has many of this, a lot of this great music actually been. But I would encourage you to try to get a hold of some of this music, contemplate on it, uh, listen to it, be moved by the words that are there, uh, and understand a little bit more what heavenly music is about. Philippians 4, verse 8, finally, brethren, the Apostle Paul says, whatever is what? True. Whatever is worthy of reverence and is honorable and seemly. That's a good phrase for how we should listen to music, don't you think? Whatever is what? Worthy of reverence and is honorable and seemly. Whatever is just. Whatever is pure. Whatever is lovely and lovable. Whatever is kind and winsome and gracious. If there is any virtue and what else? Excellence. 
there is anything worthy of praise, think on and weigh and take account of these things. Fix your minds on them. And what better way to do that through heavenly music and the good words that go along with that. The music should be virtuous, excellent, worthy of praise, worth contemplating on, lovely, pure, reverent, honorable, and seemly. Think, think of those words when you think of the music that you're going to choose to listen to. The book Evangelism by Ellen White says, Good singing is like the music of the birds, subdued and melodious. Then she says something else. You know, there's a lot of people, a lot of people somehow think this music issue is just some sort of conservative versus liberal Adventism argument. I can tell you it's, uh, <laughs> that is just a small microcosm uh, of what it is. Uh, because many people in the world understand uh, certain aspects of this uh, very clearly, particularly some re religious people. I remember a few years ago, we were having a Mark Finley series in our own church, and I invited a good student of the Word of God who was from a Protestant denomination to our church, first time he had been there. And there was a music piece played at the very beginning of it. Um, go ahead, put the nails in my hand, something like that. You will see. Eventually, you will see, etc. Uh, first of all, the words are not godly. It wasn't like, go ahead and do this to me, and now you're going to get it after this. That's kind of the way those words go. But on top of that, it was a heavy rock and roll beat throughout it. And he walked out. He walked out and did not hear the message because he recognized the music was not of heaven. And uh, it's, uh, it's sad in a way that often our wonderful messages go along with music that cheapens the message or he actually detracts from it, etc. And inquiring minds are not really brought um, to, um, uh, to the, the great messages that we have uh, and can explain from the Word of God. Here's something that might surprise you, written by Ellen White. Many Protestants suppose that the Catholic religion is unattractive and that its worship is dull, is a dull, meaningless round of ceremony. Here they mistake. Why do they mistake that? Here's what she says. The music is what? Unsurpassed. The rich notes of the deep-toned organ blending with the melody of many voices as it swells through the lofty domes and pillared aisles of her grand cathedrals cannot fail to impress the mind with awe and reverence. And so many in the Episcopalian faith, the Catholic faith, etc., they know the difference. I remember a couple of years ago when it was, I think Amy Grant was singing a, a, a Christian uh, rock concert. And the very next day she was interviewed by Katie Couric, who said, how can you call this sacred music? Uh, and, uh, and then as a result of the controversy that occurred, she really got into her for the singing of music that was purely secular and not sacred. Um, and of course, Amy Grant used the excuse, well, we're reaching people where they are, et cetera. We've got to, you know, they, they used the, the typical lines there. Uh, and uh, there was a survey that went about in, the, uh, in America, what type of Christian music do you prefer? And there were five different types. One was traditional Christian music. 
Do you know what percent of the America said they enjoyed traditional Christian music as their preferred choice? 69%. And out of that group, there are many who are offended by music that does not have that reverence and awe and sacredness there. One of the arguments that's used by the other side on this music is saying that music is amoral. It has no influence for moral one way or the other. It's the words that have its effect. If that is true, then we ought to follow what Paul said. If, it, if it's something that's amoral, he says, do not offend unduly. I can tell you this, traditional classical music offends no one. It may not be the preferred by everybody, but it offends no one. Even a rock musician can go to that Dallas Symphony concert and enjoy it and get something out of it. Even though they're, they're steep into it, they're not gonna be offended by it at all. But there are going to be people, serious-minded people who are offended by this gospel rock music. And if we wanna be least offensive to all people, what type of music will we have in our services? We're gonna have the least offensive music. So the people that make this argument are not consistent. They're totally inconsistent with their own quotes belief that the music is amoral. And if the music is moral, which they don't want to admit to, because if they admit to that, then there's a whole lot of evidence that they shouldn't be going to the venue and the type of music that they're performing, then uh, it also goes against that. So no matter which viewpoint you come with, if you come with it with a consistent set of values, you're still going to choose the traditional sacred music that is going to be more uplifting, such as the Catholics choose. <laughs> Uh, most commonly in their services, in the Episcopalians and many other, in the, in the conservative Baptists, etc. Ellen White says, those who in heaven join with the angelic choir in their anthem of praise must learn on earth the song of heaven, the keynote of which is what? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Here it looks like it's going to be a moral issue that can even affect your eternal destiny. She talks about the themes of the songs that are used in heaven as far as heavenly music. The themes of the songs are what? Love, praise, adoration to God, thanksgiving for the wonderful beauties of creation as well. She describes heavenly music. She heard it actually sung. Very few people have heard music performed by heaven itself. It's kind of interesting to see the groups that have. Do you remember any groups from the Bible that actually heard heavenly music sung by heaven itself, human beings? The shepherds, yeah, that were abiding in the field. They got the opportunity. You know, if, if everyone knew that heavenly music was going to be performed by a heavenly chorus, how much money do you think someone would be able to make by selling tickets to that? <laughs> it would be infinite. It would be a million bucks a, a pop, at least, for the tickets. But yet, those shepherds heard it for free, never had to pay anything. And they heard that, that heavenly music, because their hearts and minds were prepared uh, for it as well. The Lord blessed them uh, with that heavenly music. But she did, Ellen White did hear it. She described it as mellow-toned, uh, which is kind of interesting. Harmonious, she describes it in another place. The sweetest music. 
And then she says this, said the angel, list ye. In other words, listen. The angel asked her to listen. Soon I heard many musical instruments, all sounding in perfect strains, sweet and harmonious. It surpassed any music I had ever heard, seeming to be full of mercy, compassion, and elevating holy joy. It thrilled through my whole being, she said. This is the type of music that we can strive for even as fallen human beings here. Well, the other side of it that's most commonly played is the syncopated rhythm. Exodus, when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. To Joshua, this rock concert around the golden calf sounded like what? War. Have you ever been outside a place where rock music is being played? <laughs> kind of has that war-like quality on the outside where you know you have that heavy beat and you have the, the the shouting and you have the other things that go along with it however Moses knew the difference Joshua had not heard this type of music before he was raised in an Israelite environment where appropriate music was being played but Moses was raised after the age of 12 by the Egyptians and he had heard this music many times and he said Joshua sorry this is not war. He says, it's not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome. But the noise of them that sing do I hear. He says, this is actually Egyptian music, <laughs> the syncopated rock and roll type of music. It came to pass as soon as he came nigh into the camp, he saw the calf and the what? The dancing. In order to have that type of dancing, you have to have the dance music that goes along with it. And you won't have that type of dancing without the music. In fact, the, the dancers that dance, even in today's dance clubs, will say that they can't do it without the music. You have to have that syncopated rock and roll rhythm to do it. And as soon as that music goes away, um, the ability for them to, uh, to do that is, uh, is greatly, um, not, not greatly, it's basically completely diminished. And so the dance music was being played, and Moses' anger waxed hot. Was Moses offended by this? He was offended. He cast the tables out of his hands and broke them beneath the mount. Now, did the Lord condemn him for this act? He broke the actual tables of stone that the Lord had written with his own hand, and Moses was never condemned for that act. Later on, he was condemned because of his temper and striking the rock twice instead of speaking to it because that was inappropriate. But what he did there fit the problem of the camp and the Lord did not criticize him for it. In fact, the Lord honored him as a result of the response that he made in regards to what was going on in regards to the golden calf. Ellen White says, the things you have described as taking place in Indiana, the Lord has shown me would take place just before the close of probation. Every uncouth thing will be demonstrated. There will be shouting with what? Drums, music, and what? Dancing. When you hear dance music played as part of a religious service, you're hearing the fulfilling of prophecy. 
She sends, says the senses of rational beings will become so confused that they cannot be trusted to do what? Make right decisions. So what is, it, what is this, what does she connect it with? That music impairs what? The frontal lobe of the brain, which, which is the area where decision making is. And it's actually there by design, impairing the frontal lobe of the brain. But she says when this music is played, it will actually be called what? The moving of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and of course, this is not the Holy Spirit. This is a completely different spirit that wants to decline your frontal lobe. Uh, and written by someone who's also an expert musicologist uh, and knows how to arouse those senses. She says a bedlam of noise, which is often associated uh, with this type of music, shocks the senses and perverts that which, if conducted aright, might be a blessing. The powers of satanic agencies blend with the din and noise to have a what? A carnival. And this is termed the Holy Spirit's working. Those things which have been in the past will be in the future. Satan will make music a snare by the way in which it is conducted. And of course, we have seen that fulfillment uh, there. There's a whole section there on selected messages. Another biblical passage that is different than the syncopated rock and roll, sometimes associated with it, sometimes not. The end of 70 years shall tire. Now, tire was someone that was written about in Ezekiel and Isaiah is actually symbolic of those going the devil's way. Tire shall tire sing as a what? As a harlot. Now, what is singing like a harlot like? <laughs> the next verse, this is written, the first verse is King James Version. The second, uh, this verse 16, I put in the um, today's English version because they put poetry and actually put it to rhyme like our poetry today. Take your harp, go round the town, you poor forgotten whore. Play and sing your songs again to bring men back once more. And so it's an attractive type of sound. And as someone mentioned here, breathy. In fact, Frank Garlock, who is a Baptist, who is a PhD musicologist, talks about this. And actually gives many examples, examples that you'll hear in churches today of what singing like a whore is like. And by the way, a whore is actually producing, quotes, fake love. In other words, it's not real love. It's not love based on anything. Uh, it's just totally fake love in order to be self-serving. Uh, and uh, the fake love often is there in that whisper. If someone came up to you and whispered, let's go to lunch today, but whispered it in a way that had that breathy and coming right next to your, your, um, your ear and having that audible part where the, the crooning of the voice occurs, you would actually be offended by that. Uh, and you would look at that person like, what are you doing? And what are you saying? But you know, people can hear this in church and somehow think that this is okay. Uh, when it's actually fulfilling Isaiah's singing like a whore. So when you have the whispering, the crooning of the voice, um, you're actually uh, uh, having that. You would not look favorably on someone who comes up to you and whispers and croons a message in your ear. Why look favorably when they sing that message to you that accentuates the fake love that's there? And some people don't realize that, you know, we are to have a, a relationship with our 
with our Lord and Master, but it's to be reverent. It's to be full of awe, of majesty and praise. It's not something like we're getting ready for a sexual encounter. That's not what the Lord wants to have with us. And that's not what we want to have with the Lord. Uh, and uh, we need to, uh, to, to get away from the, the sexual innuendos that are often combined with sacred music. It's really the combining of the sacred and the profane, which I think is, uh, is an abomination to the Lord. The superfluities which have been brought into the worship in blank must be strenuously avoided, Ellen White said. So this superfluity type of music, music is accepted to God only when the heart is sanctified and made soft and holy by its facilities. But many who delight in music know nothing of making melody in their hearts to the Lord. Their heart is gone after their idols. And so we see American Idol, and we see all of these other idols that are producing the type of music that is, uh, is really uh, the breaking of the Ten Commandments uh, in it uh, in several ways, but uh, particularly in the idol or worship aspect of things that are not part of that soft and holy and sacred and heavenly music. I thought it was interesting. The last time the General Conference put forward a music statement, I actually have it here. It's in four pages. It was voted officially by the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists in Mexico City in October 1972. They spoke about several things. Vocal treatment. They said the raucous style common to rock, the suggestive, sentimental, breathy, crooning style of the nightclub performer, and other distortions of the human voice should be avoided. Make it pretty plain. Testimony says God's servants in this age have been given most solemn truths to proclaim. And their actions and methods and plans must correspond to the importance of their message. If you're presenting the word in Christ's way, your audience will be deeply impressed with the truths you teach. The conviction will come to them that this is the word of the living God. Now she goes on to say this, in their efforts to reach the people, the Lord's messengers are not to follow the ways of the world. In the meetings that are held, they are not to depend on worldly singers in theatrical display to awaken an interest. And, you know, I've seen sometimes in our evangelistic series, we're inviting this popular country music singer to come in, et cetera, and to sing this thing to, to the people and to sing that part because they sell a lot of records, et cetera, and we think we're going to attract them. She says this, how can those who have no interest in the word of God, who have never read his word with a sincere desire to understand its truths, be expected to sing with the spirit and the understanding? How can their hearts be in harmony with the words of sacred song? How can the heavenly choir join in music that is only a form? No words can properly set forth the deep blessedness, she says, of genuine worship. When human beings sing with the spirit and understanding, heavenly musicians take up the strain and join in the song of thanksgiving. He who has bestowed upon us all the gifts that enable us to be workers together with God expects his servants to cultivate their voices so that they can speak and sing in a way that all can understand. It is not loud singing that is needed, but clear intonation, correct pronunciation, and distinct utterance. Let all take time to cultivate the voice so that God's praise can be sung in clear, soft tones, not with harshness and shrillness that offend the ear. The ability to sing is the gift of God. Let it be used to his glory. In fact, she talked about being, this wasn't in the syncopated rock and roll realm, but she talked about being in church services where there was loud, shrill singing. 
and uh, and she said it was a relief when it was over with, um, <laughs> that it was not heavenly, uh, and. Uh, uh, and so she, she brings forward a different quality that's part of heavenly music. She says, in the meetings held, let a number be chosen to take part in the song service. Let the singing be accompanied with musical instruments skillfully handled. We are not to oppose the use of instrumental music in our work. This part of the service to be carefully conducted for it is the praise of God in song. You know, there are some churches who actually go against any instrumental music in their church. And that was starting to occur in her day. She says, you know, it's not, although the singing of the voice is great and those type of a cappella numbers can be useful and helpful in certain instances to give the full praise to God, it needs to be carefully done, but instrumental music is part of that. The singing is not always to be done by a few. As often as possible, let the entire, what? Congregation sing. And it's kind of interesting when you get the syncopated rock and roll rhythms out and you start parading that in front of the church. And if you've, if you've ever been to a church like that, look to see how many people are participating in that. They're trying to get the whole congregation sing, but it's a minority of them that are actually participating. They might be standing, etc. But you get a good just piano player out there playing the hymns and then look at the participation. It's far greater, actually. Uh, demonstrating the point that I made earlier, that, uh, that most Americans actually prefer uh, the traditional uh, uh, sacred music as being uplifting. Uh, and so it shouldn't just be by a few performers. We should have as many as possible. She said, in some of our churches, I've heard solos that were altogether unsuitable for the service of the Lord's house. The long, drawn-out notes and the peculiar sounds common and what type of singing? Operatic singing are not pleasing to the angels. They delight to hear the simple songs of praise sung in a natural tone. The songs in which every word is uttered clearly in a musical tone are the songs that they join us in singing. They take up the refrain that is sung from the heart with the spirit and the understanding. How many of you have, part have actually seen this take place before? Uh, not the operatic style, but the style where she talks about where the words are uttered clearly, they're simple songs, but it seems like the angels have joined in and actually filled it out. I've been part of that several times, and it's always occurred with this type of music. And it's actually a thrilling thing to be a part of when you recognize that the angels have actually filled in and joined uh, in uh, that singing. I was actually a part of that about a month ago uh, in, in Arkansas with some simple uh, music being sung by a simple choir. Back to this autumn council that the general conference said, there were 10 principles that were given. This was one of the principles. Never compromise high principles of dignity and excellence in efforts to reach people just where they are. That was one of the principles. And by the way, here's what was also stated in this voted by the general conference. Certain musical forms such as jazz, rock, and their related hybrid forms and I would just add into that related hybrid forms, we could name a number of them, uh, but country music is part of that, where you have that syncopated uh, music, are incompatible with these principles. The church stated very clearly, if the church would have just followed, and its leaders followed that four-page musical document, we wouldn't have had the problems that came in uh, later on. 
Of all the musical elements, rhythm evokes the strongest physical senses. Satan's greatest successes have often come through his appeal to the physical nature. Showing keen awareness of the dangers involved in this approach to youth, Ellen G. White said, and this was quoted in this document, they have a keen ear for music talking about the youth, and Satan knows what organs to excite, to animate, engross, and charm the mind so that Christ is what? Not desired. The spiritual longings of the soul for divine knowledge, for a growth in grace, are wanting or lacking. And then the Autumn Council goes on to say this is a strong indictment of the way in which music may be and I might have typed that in wrong. Let's see if I can, I have it right here in front of me uh, to see uh, what I did. Okay, that's right. The strong indictment of the way in which music may be put to a use that is in direct opposition to God's plan. Jazz, rock, and related hybrid forms are well known for creating this sensuous response in masses of people. And thus, it was strongly condemned in this Autumn Council. In harmonic treatment, very interesting what was written there too. Music should be avoided that is saturated with the 7th, 9th, 11th, and 13th chords, as well as other lush sonorities. These chords, when used with restraint, produce beauty, but when used to distract from the, but when used to excess, distract from the true spiritual quality of the text. And often you'll hear music that doesn't have the syncopated rock and roll, but you'll hear all these sevenths and ninths and elevenths and thirteenths, these kind of, quotes, unique harmonies come in. And what happens when you don't have that, those solid chords is that it produces a mysticism that makes you believe that the words aren't really true. Uh, and so it's kind of almost putting a question mark into the solid words that are there instead of our firm belief that it, uh, in those words, which the more dominant chords will bring out. And the sevenths and ninths can be transition areas, you know, from changing one key to another and can have some interest things. But to use that, a lot of times this modern music that's not syncopated rock and roll actually ends with a seventh chord at the very end, which produces this huge question mark there that is not conducive uh, to that solidarity that the Lord wants us to have with the words. Then the amplification. Great care should be exercised to avoid excessive instrumental and vocal amplification. I was in a, in a church service. I was actually speaking on the frontal lobe of the brain a couple of, several years ago in this large church I won't tell you where it was from, but I can tell you it was not within a 50-mile radius of this place. Uh, but it was a, uh, a large church, and they were, thought they were well-educated. This was kind of the rich church in the area, in a metropolitan area. And uh, they had a woman elder that was barking out to everyone ahead of time, you only have two minutes, you're to stand here. It was a well-orchestrated service, and we want to give Dr. Nedley as much time as he possibly can have uh, to, to teach to us, et cetera. And there was only one thing to go, and it was 11.20, and I thought, wow, I'm going to have nice time here. And it was just the music, but I didn't realize it was going to be a 20-minute rock and roll service. And so they came up with their rock and roll service, but for whatever reason, their amplification, their electricity had problems. And you know what? If you take electricity away from rock and roll, it sounds 
far worse. Uh, I mean, it's, it sounds empty and hollow, and it's just, uh, and they, the people were apologizing, I'm sorry, you know, we're having problems with the amplification, and they were trying to fix their electrical circuits and all of that, and they couldn't get it fixed, and no one was participating in it, and everyone was wishing it was over with, but they still continued to go on for 20 minutes on this. And then I spoke to them on the frontal lobe of the brain, and I talked to them <laughs> about what this music actually does. And, you know, a lot of people are in this ignorantly. They don't know what it's doing. Uh, most people are ignorant today. They don't know the truths that you've just been presented with. And uh, to this church's uh, su uh, success, at the end of the I didn't know anybody in that church. Um, they had just known of me. But uh, I was wondering how it was going to go. And Monday night, the two pastors got on the phone and called me and said, we want to book you for next year. That was so good. And I came back the next year, and that part of the service had been totally done away with. Uh, and they had changed their music form just by being educated and studying it out. Uh, and so this, uh, this, ex this uh, amplification, in fact, she says, when a the General Conference says, when amplifying music, there should be a sensitivity to the spiritual needs of those giving the witness and of those who are to receive it. Careful consideration should be given to the selection of instruments for amplification. You definitely don't want to amplify the rhythmic uh, type of instruments uh, that, uh, that go along with that, particularly when it's going to be syncopated. Well, I think I'm running out of time. I have more uh, here, but uh, let me see if I can... Uh, uh, there's more... Well, I was going to end with another section of great heavenly music when Christ entered in after his resurrection. This was 40 days on the ascension. And uh, she describes the scene. Angel choruses, one on one side of heaven's gate and one on the other side of heaven's gate. Again, asking questions like Bach had done in the St. Matthew Passion. Asking questions, uh, uh, why should you gates be lifted up? And then the answer was given, the king of glory shall enter in. And the choruses are harmonizing and going back and forth. And in the midst of this beautiful, angelic, heavenly music, Christ stops the music. He raises his hand and he stops the music. And he says no. Why did he say no to that beautiful music? Does anyone remember the story? Well, they were singing the king of glory shall come in, but that's not why he stopped it because they hadn't said that yet. That's right. He wanted to be sure. He had gotten earlier after he had, you know, he had that quick ascension afterwards where he'd been in the Father's presence and the sacrifice had been accepted. But he was bringing with him now the 24 individuals that were resurrected, human beings that were resurrected at his resurrection, human beings. It's hard for me to talk about. But he wanted to make sure that they were going to be accepted. And so he went up while everyone was there. And he pointed at the 24 human beings. And he said, Father, my blood. And the Father not only accepted it, 
but then told the angelic chorus to begin again. And they lifted it up a, a strain higher, and those gates opened up. Beautiful, heavenly music. I don't want to miss out on the next time that happens. And let's choose the music of the heavenly music to listen to today. Let's <clears throat> prepare our hearts and minds to have our frontal lobes enhanced, to have our worship period advanced, and to not be delving into the worldly music that's going to detract our minds from Christ and his principles. Well, that was what I was going to quote to you there, but if you want to see it, you can see it afterwards. But uh, let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given even us today, lowly human beings, principles of music that we can grasp hold of and listen to, to your honor and praise and glory. We thank you for pointing out to us the principles of heavenly music. And may we consistently participate in the type of music that will uplift our thoughts heavenward and not degrade our thoughts away from you. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.